Hello, everybody. I'm Danny Boom Boom McCarthy. Summer's almost gone. Summer's almost gone. Almost gone. Summer's almost gone. Where will we be when the summer's gone? Everybody, welcome back to the Story of Nowhere podcast. I am your host, Daniel McCarthy, and this is episode 28. Now, my original plan for today's episode was to present to you the recording of the speech I gave at this past summer's Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest. But, unfortunately, due to some technical difficulties that were beyond my control, my speech was not preserved. So, that means you don't get to hear it. Now, I'm not too upset by this, because the content of the speech is actually something that I've been wanting to get into on the show in more depth anyway. So, I think it'll all work out in the end. You're going to get the content of the speech, the actual meat of it, probably in a more thorough way than I delivered it this past summer. But, even still, it kind of sucks that you don't get to hear the speech, but what are you going to do? On the bright side, the live episode of the Road to Hell Film Reviews podcast that my friend Nikki P. and I recorded there did manage to survive. So that discussion will be coming out, I assume, fairly shortly. So be sure to keep your eyes peeled for that at RoadToHellFilmReviews.com. We talk about Terminator 1 and 2. You're not going to want to miss it. So it's been a little while since I've released an episode. Longer than I would like, anyway. And, you know, I've got some excuses for that. Uh, it is summertime, and so I've been trying my best to get outside and enjoy the weather. Um, but also that means that we've been working, Alice and I, out in the garden. Uh, tending to the garden is a job in and of itself, and we've been doing what we can to keep it prosperous. Although, <laughs> there's always room for improvement, believe me. I've got a whole list of things that we need to do better next year. Uh, aside from that, of course, owning and maintaining a house is yet another job in and of itself, so we've been taking advantage of the nice weather to get some home care projects done. And, you know, sometimes I get a little bit down that I don't get to spend as much time as I would like working on this podcast, this whole project of mine. Um, but when I think about it, I, I like to remind myself, and I don't think I'm just you know, trying to convince myself of something that's not true to feel better. I actually believe this to be the case, that things like home care, 
growing food, accruing capital, because I'm also working a real W-2 job, all of those things, in a way, actually fall into the larger philosophy, if you will, of the Story of Nowhere project. Because, as I've said from the very beginning, the point of this show, the point of this project, isn't just to point out problems throughout history and in the modern age, but it's also to provide solutions. But that doesn't just mean go on the podcast and give people advice, like, here's a solution to this problem, here's a solution to that problem. It also means, like, me in the real world actually applying things that I think are right that will move me in and my family in the direction of greater autonomy and independence from the utopians, of course. So, when I'm taking care of the house, when I'm going to work even, and accruing capital that I'll hopefully invest into my own business later on, uh, I'll say a little bit more about that later, but even when I'm just spending time with my wife, all of these are things that I think are fostering the kind of life that I want to live. And that's really important. Growing my own food is something that I believe is really important, and it's not separate from this larger project. I think that my political research, my historical research, and all of that stuff, it actually falls under the same umbrella as my gardening. I know that that might sound like a somewhat obnoxiously holistic approach to life, but, well, so what? I think that it's actually true. I'm gardening for the same reason that I'm reading about the history of the Bolsheviks and, and things like that. It, it falls under the same category of thing to me. I'm doing it all for the same reason. And so when I get down and think, damn, I really wish I could be working on the podcast right now, but I've got to water the garden, I can console myself and say, in a way, I kind of am working on the Story of Nowhere project. So that's nice. Anyway, I said that I wanted to go back and mention something about my job. This is something that I think that many people maybe will be able to take advantage of. Just a little bit of, I guess, advice. It depends on what line of work you're in, of course. This won't be for everybody, but I just want to share what I'm doing at work that uh, is enriching to me and is actually helping me or will potentially help me in my podcasting in the future. So... For those of you who don't know, I work in a factory on an assembly line, and the nature of the jobs that I do, at least some of the time, allows for me to kind of check out mentally. Like, I don't need to be paying super close attention to what I'm doing. It's kind of repetitive, monotonous work, which, you know, could drive you crazy. But luckily, given the nature of my job, I'm able to have headphones in, and, uh, this is nice because I can listen to whatever I want. But also, some of these jobs, because, frankly, I'm good at them, uh, I can complete them very quickly and with a relative ease, which leaves my hands free for some of the time. It's hard to kind of really explain this because I'm talking in terms of seconds, like the job, I'll do it in a couple seconds and then have a couple free seconds and then take another second to do the next job and... Things like, it, it's weird to convey through words, but you'd get it if you saw it, and maybe some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But my point is that some of the time at work, I'm actually able to read a book. Like, not, I don't mean audiobook, although I can do that too, but I mean I can actually bring a physical book 
and read it while I'm working and have a fair amount of focus on it, which is great. Even just with the headphones, I can listen to audiobooks. And as a matter of fact, lately, I've been listening to the complete, well, I say complete, I have the complete audiobook set of Will and Ariel Durant's 11-volume Story of Civilization, which is incredible. I'm listening to, I plan on listening to the entire thing. Right now, I'm only on volume one, although I'm pretty close to the end of volume one. And what I'm doing as I listen to the audiobook is actually time coding when certain things are mentioned, certain subjects come up, so that I can go back and maybe use some of these clips in the show when appropriate. And some of you who have been listening for a long time may recall that I actually have already used clips from these audiobooks uh, way back in the beginning in the Brief History of Critical Thinking series. I think episodes 1, 2, and 4, maybe, uh, include clips from the Durant Story of Civilization. I love it. It's a great listen. It's a great sweeping history, which I think is just great to provide some context for my own historical understanding and interest. But whatever. My point is that I'm creating a time code of that. I'm leveraging mundanity. You know, the job I'm doing isn't exactly something I find fulfilling. It's not the kind of work that I want to do or really am interested in. But I found a way within that system that I don't like to actually do something that is fulfilling to me. So the reason I go to work is because I need to accrue that capital. I can't just stop going. I'm going there with the goal in mind of earning money, and then reinvesting that money into myself later on, okay? So I encounter a lot of people in this factory setting who are fairly young. Some are fairly old, but it's a little more disturbing when it's the young ones who, I mean, I've come across people who are younger than me, people 18, 19, 20 years old. They get hired into this place and basically figure, all right, I'm set. I don't need to think about my situation for 30 years. You know, they get the job when they're 20, they're going to retire when they're 50, and that's it. And fine. I mean, there's, I'm not mad at these people. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. It's just, to me, kind of eerie. First of all, having plans 30 years out is, well, I don't know. How do you know that the place is even going to be in business in 30 years? It just seems, it just seems a little bit irresponsible, maybe naive. I don't know. That's just not my style. For me, I go in there with the goal in mind of leaving, not in 30 years, but as soon as I can. I want to take the money I can get from this place, reinvest it in myself, in a business that, again, I'll, I'm going to get to. But while I'm there, I also want to get as much out of the time I'm spending there as I can. Because, you know, if I weren't there eight hours a day, I'd be here at home doing what I want to do. So if I can bring what I want to do into work and then get a, as much of that in as I possibly can, well then great. In a way, I'm kind of being paid to do what I want to do while I'm being paid to do what I don't want to do. Right. So I can read. And I do read whenever I can. And, you know, I, I'm not, I don't let it get in the way of my actual work. I prioritize getting the actual job I'm there to do done. I'm, I try to be respectful just because I don't, like the work doesn't mean I have the right to be a dick about it. I get my job done, and then when I feel confident and comfortable in a job, I I do my own thing a little bit. The reason I'm going off on this long rant about what I do at work is just to tell people who 
have jobs out there that maybe you don't find particularly fulfilling, keep your eyes peeled. Keep your keep your ears open for potential opportunities to maybe squeeze in the kind of stuff that you would like to do. Again, I know that not all jobs allow for this kind of thing. And if your job doesn't allow for you to do that, then I'm sorry. That sucks. But I'm sure some people out there maybe can find these sorts of opportunities in their work. I know that, you know, even if your job is just driving, like you could listen to music or goofy shit if you want. And maybe that's what you should do some of the time. But bear in mind that that's also a potential opportunity for you to be consuming podcasts, lectures, audiobooks, courses, whatever, that's actually going to help you get to where you want to be. There's no reason for you to just get stuck in whatever it is you're doing. Not always, but often, there are opportunities that maybe you don't necessarily see for you to leverage your mundane situation and grow intellectually, physically, or whatever as a result. So, I implore you all, if possible, to do that. I'm doing it to the best of my ability at this point. Okay, I've mentioned investing capital that I gain at my W-2 job into a business. Uh, I've mentioned investing in myself. This is something that I want to do. And in a past episode, I don't exactly remember which past episode, but fairly recently I mentioned that I was working on a super secret project that's part of the story of Nowhere thing in general, but it's not a podcast, but it's really important and it's relevant to the podcast, blah, blah, blah. I alluded to something like that, and sorry, but at this point, I'm still just going to be alluding to it. I'm not quite ready to announce exactly what this thing is, although I'm damn close to ready. Uh, there's just some logistical stuff that needs to be completed regarding, well, don't worry about what it's regarding. You'll Don't worry about it. Everything's fine. But I have been working on a project, and this is, again, part of the reason, I know excuses, excuses, but this is part of the reason I've been delayed in actually putting out this episode, uh, because I've been spending my the free time that I do have more focusing on that project than getting a podcast out. But once I get what needs done, done, then I'll be able to focus more attention back on the podcast, which is what I really want to do. Again, I know I'm not giving you much, but this project I'm working on and almost done working on, I think is very, very important and very, very good and very, very useful and very, very relevant, not only to this project in general and the podcast, but just our, our times in general, I think. And when it comes, I'll give you a whole spiel about why I think it's all of these great things, relevant and whatever else. So just, you know, pay attention to the story of Nowhere Feed, and uh, you'll get the news when the time is right. I'm very eager for this project to be done, and I'm very eager for you all to take part in it. But I'll let the mystery simmer for a little while longer. Now, let's take a minute to talk about the actual show you're about to hear. This episode is a recording of the first of the series of meetings that I now run for Brett Vinat's University on Tuesdays. Now, if you're not familiar with Brett Vinat's University, you may recall, I assume most people are already aware of this, but in case you're not, Brett Vinat for 12 years was the host of the great School Sucks podcast. And uh, this past well, well, I guess last year now, almost a year ago, in fact, uh, the School Sucks podcast came to an end. 
But that doesn't mean Brett just kind of dropped off the planet. He's now working on this more or less internet intellectual community of sorts called the University. At this point, it's mostly run on Discord, but we do Zoom meetings periodically. And Brett asked me if I would be interested in conducting a meeting on Tuesdays. And I said, absolutely. So that's what we've been doing. It's been going for a month and a half or so now. I probably should know, but I don't. Um, but I've been running these meetings and they've been very enjoyable. And we talk about all sorts of things, as you will soon hear. I'm going to play for you today, the, as I said, the first of these meetings because I was really happy with how it went, and having done subsequent meetings afterwards, this first meeting is actually a pretty good picture of how they go in general. So, I figured I'd share it with you, because I may share later meetings with you in the future as well. In this, we talk about a whole host of topics. We talk about problems, and we talk about solutions, ranging from gardening and permaculture to politics to environmentalism. We begin with the gardening stuff, which, in my opinion, is a hugely important part of the fight against centralized utopian ideologies. The more you can produce your own food supply, the less you'll be dependent on the state and corporations for your survival. And the less dependent upon the state and corporations you are, the less control they wield over you. The majority of the conversation, however, deals with the political fragmentation we're witnessing in America today. We discuss the so-called post-libertarian movement, if you can call it a movement, and the fact that many people are moving farther and farther to the right. And I don't mean the George W. Bush or even the Donald Trump right. I mean to the divine right kingship right. And they're doing this as a reaction against the ridiculous and almost cartoonish eccentricities of the so-called left, the doddering evil of the moderate liberal establishment, and the apparent inability for traditional libertarians and anarcho-capitalists to affect real political change. We briefly discuss the actual differences between left and right, and also talk about how these burgeoning right-wingers may be playing right into the political dialectic by shifting their focus from principles to power they adopt the same moral relativism which makes their opponents so repulsive, and ultimately endangers everybody. As I said back in episode 23, beware a Thermidorian reaction. Now, on that, and on this whole right-wing thing, I've got a lot to say. Right off the bat, I've got to admit that I am, at least in some ways, actually sympathetic. I think that there is something to be said for the inevitability of power, political power, in human relations. And I think that it's fair, and maybe even correct to an extent, to argue that certain cultural norms really need to be defended. Live and let live might not be the best way to preserve any culture, even one based on liberty, because soon enough those who wish to infringe upon the liberties of others will seize power and basically enslave everybody, precisely because they were allowed the freedom to spread their ideology, to organize, to participate in the political process, etc., etc., etc. That seems to be the argument, I guess, that this new right wing is making, and again, I think that there's 
something to it. It's not dumb. I don't know that a king is the best way to protect against all that, but I can at least see where they're coming from. I think they've also got a pretty damn sophisticated analysis of political power. I'm thinking of elite theory, which has been expounded upon in the recent book The Populist Delusion by Nima Parvini, a book which seems to be rapidly becoming a canonical text for this right wing I'm referring to. It's a roundup of sorts of political thinkers from the past hundred years or so who basically argued that societies are never steered by the masses themselves, but rather by small groups of elites. The idea being that, basically, the only way to actually direct society in any way, the right way or the wrong way, is not to try and get the average person to save himself, but rather to make sure that your elites win out over your enemies' elites. I did a kind of quick read through this book to get the general idea of it, but now having done so, I want to go through it again more carefully, because not only is it interesting, and again, I think there's some great points to be made in there, I also think there are certain major premises that stood out to me as being wrong. But I don't want to comment specifically on that or give my critique of it until I've really studied the book in, in depth. Nevertheless, the book ain't dumb, and neither are the people reading it. I think this right wing that's emerging needs to be considered very seriously and philosophically. They should not be hand-waved away as a bunch of unimportant racists or anything like that. Though, to be perfectly honest, I do have some misgivings about their approach to certain social issues and certain social dynamics. So, in my saying these people are worthy of our consideration, I'm not some in some way endorsing them or saying, oh, they're, everything they're saying is great and I agree with everything. No, not at all. I'm In fact, I think that it's pretty conceivable that there are things that I really, really, really vociferously disagree with these people on. But that doesn't mean that we can just hand-wave them away. I don't really know, to be perfectly honest at this point, what I think about this burgeoning post-libertarian right-wing, but I'd like to figure out what I think about it, and to do that, I'm going to have to engage with it. Jesus. Anyway, we talk a little bit about that crowd in today's episode. And after we discuss all that, we touch a little bit on environmentalism, specifically the debate over fossil fuels. So that's pretty interesting, too. It probably goes without saying, but these are all very big subjects that we're going to touch on in today's conversation, and so naturally, we don't cover any of them definitively. This is a casual conversation, and these are ongoing discussions. And each subsequent meeting that we have, we touch on some of these topics again and again and build on the previous conversations. That's really, if you think about it, what a conversation actually is. A good conversation isn't something that takes place over the course of an hour or an evening. A good conversation is something that takes place episodically over a period of years. So, really, in today's show, you're just going to hear the beginning of a conversation. And I do plan on periodically releasing these Tuesday meetings of mine when I think they're show-worthy. So you can look forward to that. Now, I do want to add just a quick production note. Because this is a casual conversation, 
The people who call in are calling in while they're doing whatever it is they do during the day. You hear some moving around. You'll hear some shuffling and some background noise, stuff like that. I did what I could to clean it up, but just so you know, it's not pristine, perfect audio. Not that my audio ever is pristine or perfect, but whatever. It's listenable. And I, maybe even to say listenable is to undersell it a bit. I think it's actually pretty good. I just want you to know that if you hear weird things in the background, it's because people are out doing things while we're involving ourselves in this conversation. So that's what the birds chirping in the background is. That being said, uh, let's get into it. Thank you all for listening. As always, be sure to subscribe and recommend the show to your people. Check out the book at storyofnowhere.com slash book. And keep your eyes on the podcast feed because there will be more shows and a special announcement coming relatively soon. And also don't forget to go to roadtohellfilmreviews.com and look for that Terminator episode. All right, everybody. Enjoy. tomatoes are coming up we've got a ton of squash um it's not as prolific as we were hoping this is really our first year gardening at this property um so we were just kind of yeah. taking a backseat approach to it seeing what wants to come up and what doesn't so like i said tomatoes squash potatoes are coming up and um well not coming up but you know what i mean and yeah uh, coming out it's and time what, yep yep and but Really, what we're getting most of is uh, tomatillos, which oh, I love. I love tomatillos, except for getting all sticky peeling them. Right, <laughs> but we didn't plant any of them. So, oh, really? Yeah, it's our. They came up in your compost. Yep, yep. So we've got we've traced it back to my wife's brother. Uh, somehow, the seeds must have come from him and wound up in our compost. And I mean, every bed has like three tomatillo plants and they're all thriving. So <laughs> we're going to, we're going to save some of those seeds or just kind of let them, let them do their thing. And uh, obviously they grow well in this yard. So we'll grow more next year and make that a regular crop around here because they, they cool. want to come up. Yeah. Do you guys can? We have not, but uh, it's certainly on the list of things to do. Tomatilla salsa cans really well. Yeah. Tomatoes are easy to can. There's a book. I'll have to, I don't remember the, the, I think it's a USDA book on canning, which is really nicely organized. I'll look back over to the house. Canning's pretty easy. It's a great way to store your vegetables, uh, things like tomatillas and tomatoes and beans. And I've been canning for years and it's really, it, it, you get a good canner and just get one that you think is going to be too damn big um, because you can never have one that's too big. Um, I, we didn't plant a garden this year. I'm building one, but I didn't actually plant anything this year because I'm so caught up in building. Right. Bought a freeze dryer this year and that thing's been a riot. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's been great. What are you doing with that? So let's see. We've done dog food, cat food, peaches, strawberries. Let's see. What else have we done? Green beans, lots of kale. We're getting too much kale from our CSA. And so we've done lots of kale, all the greens off the tops of our beets. We've been freeze drying those and then just powdering them and putting, and uh, you save those for wintertime, put them in soups and whatnot, adding them to like potato soup and things. Mm-hmm. This is my greenhouse. Wow. And so I did raised beds inside it. And yesterday we planted the day before yesterday, we plant, no, it was yesterday. We planted, um, our first thing, we planted carrots. Nice. <laughs> That's great. We're getting, uh, a couple of carrots are coming up. They, we might need to try a different placement of them next year, but we're getting a handful of them, but they're there nonetheless. I was reading the, um, I've got this Lynn, is it Lynn Gillespie? I'm doing it. Yeah, I guess it was Lynn Gillespie and on the cinder block gardens. She says that if you plant them in the block, in the holes in the blocks, just put one carrot in there. But you get these really giant carrots that grow all the way down 16 inches to the bottom of the hmm. thing. She says it's it's crazy. She doesn't understand why they grow so well there huh. in those blocks. But yeah, we chose to do cinder block raised beds. Nancy was all concerned about what's in the cinder blocks. And so I went down this whole rabbit hole of trying to figure out what our cinder blocks are made up of because a lot of cinder blocks are made from fly ash, which comes from the coal burning power plant scrubbings out of Ukraine, believe it or not. Wow. Um, Ours doesn't. We're in North Carolina and North Carolina has um, a lot of slate. And so one of the byproducts of slab slate is all these little bits and pieces and they figured out how to run them in rotary kilns and puff them up. Um, and they sell a product called Staylight, and it's also called Permatil, which is used in organic gardening. But that's what the cinder blocks are made out of here. Okay, so not that and cement. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So they they could almost be certified organic. That's cool. <laughs> I've got some extra cinder blocks, but I'll have to uh, figure out where they come from in these parts. Um, yeah, but you can always coat the inside of them with whatever. Right, you get extra paint, latex paint. You know, um, you can seal them up with just about anything. Line them with plastic, just so that they're not leaching into the soil. Yeah, that's an interesting. Right. Yeah, I've never heard of that before with the carrots. Um, because we've we've always done carrots, but they've always come up basically the size of baby carrots. Yeah, me too. So last year was my first year. My garden did really well last year. Um, and it was my first year of having decent sized carrots. And I put them in an area of the garden that had very, very loose soil down a foot. So, and that, that I think was the key was the fact that the soil wasn't compacted at all where I planted them. I did that on, I did it on purpose. I actually, I use a broad fork. If you know what a broad fork is. Um, I don't think so. So it has, I don't know, seven or nine tines on it. They're, each one is probably five-eighths of an inch or maybe three-quarters of an inch in diameter. Um, it's 
not quite two feet wide, the head of this thing, and it has two big, strong handles. And so you stand on it and you drive it down into the ground and then you lean back and it just kind of picks up. And then you move it every foot and it just picks up huge sections of, of dirt and just separates it apart so that nutrients and whatever's on the top falls down in the cracks that you made and in the holes that you made and aerates everything rather than tilling. So uh, soil forms a strata. If you go and run through your garden with a tiller, get it all tilled up nice and beautiful, the it will take the next several months and it will reform layers of strata that you destroyed. And so the idea behind using a broad fork to aerate and break up your soil is that all you're doing is separating the the, the layers by you know a half an inch or a quarter of an inch from each other and they'll re-knit quickly right um and you're not you're not breaking it up you've got different organisms that live it in different aerobic or anaerobic situations and so you're not throwing them all into a mix okay. and so that's the idea behind using a broad fork okay and you know it's uh it's fast i mean it really doesn't take long um even in a new garden, once you get the first clod, and you, you could actually dig a clod out and then go back through with the broad fork. And um, there's also a way of starting new beds if you don't have to deal with a boatload of grass rhizomes, um, where you, it's called double digging the first year, where you dig a trench and you move it out, and then you, let's see. You dig it twice. You dig one trench out double deep, and then you take and move over beside it, and you dig down and you throw the dirt from that trench into the one beside it. And then you dig again and you put that one on top. And then you just keep moving sideways on these rows, and you end up with this where you've dug, double dug, and you've moved everything on top of each other. And, and put some of the richer soil down deep and brought some of the more dense clay stuff up near the top. Right. Uh, that's it. That's in Elliot Coleman's book is where I got that. Um, how to grow more vegetables than you ever thought possible. I think is that, but that's good for starting new beds. New beds are hard. Yeah. The Mar uh, Marjorie Wildcraft. Uh, I was listening to a, a seminar that she did last winter. And she said, just forget it. She said, just do raised beds and buy your soil. So you immediately have soil to go with and you're going to grow right away. You're not going to have to improve your soil. It's already there. And I, I liked that idea that for, for new beds, for starting out new is just, just buy your soil. I couldn't buy any for my greenhouse. So I ended up having to make it. So it's one third coarse sand, one third peat moss, and one third compost. And the compost that I got was bags of. of uh, there's we have a, a dairy farmer or a dairy farm here, and they produce Daddy Pete's manure. And they've got this huge production. They they buy all the manure from their local dairy farms and uh, compost it. And so I use that. There's a lot of shoveling. And yeah. a lot of raking and hoeing. And I, you know, she says to use a, a cement mixer, but I couldn't find one that I could rent or buy quickly. And so I ended up just 
doing it by hand. That greenhouse has three cubic yards of soil in it, in the three beds that I have in there. That's 93 cubic feet in the three of them. For our soil, there's a place a couple cities over. It's basically like the, the county dump, but they've got a whole pile of dirt that anyone could come and just take as much as they want. So, Are you in Pittsburgh? No, I'm in Cleveland. In Cleveland. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we loaded up on that, but we've also been making compost since we moved in here. So this was our first year gardening, but we moved in last May and pretty much starting day one, we were doing compost. So in the compost that we'd been making for the last year with that soil, and then pretty much just built all of our beds off of that. All of our beds are raised beds. So, and we're doing like the root stout lasagna type of deal. Mm-hmm. soil, mulch, soil, mulch. Um, yep. That's a great way to do it. Yep. And it's been good. The one thing that I, I'm thinking that even as much as of that soil that we got, it probably wasn't enough. Uh, so we mixed in a lot of our compost, but, you know, just by virtue of being in our ground, on our ground, it's got a lot of clay in it. You know, a lot of our clayey dirt made its way in. So one of the things you can do is there are these daikon radishes. Um, and I think it's a specific kind of daikon radish that you can plant. And I think you can plant them in the fall with like clover mix. And they they grow really long. I mean, they're like two or three feet long daikon radishes and you don't harvest them okay you just leave them there and let them rot and so what they do is they tunnel way down into the soil past what you've got and as they rot they create big cavities for that nice soil and compost that you've got on top to wash down in deeper into your soil okay and that's a good cover that's a part of a cover crop um what's the guy's name gabe somebody out west has figured out to how to do uh, cover crops and he's taking dead soil and bringing it back to super rich soil in like three years just by using different perennial or, or uh, native grasses and not perennial grasses but native grasses and other things and i think that's where i got the daikon idea from Okay, that's really good to know. Um, oh, and by the way, I wanted to ask you about the broad fork too. When do you advise doing that, going over and aerating everything like that? You know, you should probably do it in the after the after the first good frost, hard frost, okay. um, and after everything's died off. Um, but um, I, I'm always freaking lazy and never get it done until spring. So, um, but yeah, so if you, if you amend your soil, you know, if you're going to add compost in the fall, um, and some, you know, manure or anything like that, or, uh, you know, feather meal or anything like that in there, uh, doing it in the fall gives it the whole winter to, to break down and enter into the soil. And I'm, I'm just, we, we travel so much during the holidays that I'm always late and end up doing it in the spring and it seems to work okay. Okay. Huh. How long have you been in Cleveland? Oh man. Were you born there? I was born here and uh I've been here pretty much my whole life except for a little five a five year window when I was a little kid. We lived in Pittsburgh. Near Pittsburgh. But so since 
since 2002, I've been back here. So I was born in Cleveland. Really? Yeah. And we lived in, I don't know um, where I was born. I think, no, I couldn't tell you. But we lived in Cleveland, Cleveland Heights, kind of the falls. Uh, I remember, I remember Cuyahoga Falls. Um, I liked Cuyahoga uh, as a kid, and this Strawbridge Lake used to go out there. Anyway, um, went to Hiram College. Wow. Okay. Uh, so, when did you leave Cleveland? Oh, um, let's see. Uh, I was would have been five years old, six years old, five years, okay. five years, six years old. And we lived, the dad had the traveling Jones. You couldn't keep that man bolted down if you tried. So we, we lived all over. I spent junior high and high school in Dallas and two years of elementary school in outside of Tulsa. And then we've lived in Michigan, Maryland, New Jersey, Ohio. Yeah. And then I moved to, after I got out of, College. I moved to to Colorado for a while and spent ten years in Minneapolis before moving to Western North Carolina. And they're stuck with me now. I love it here. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So you really have a, a lay of the country. That's cool. I haven't traveled nearly as much as I probably should. It's overrated. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> hey, Nikki. I've been pretty much. I, I've traveled vertically. From where I am now, I've been as north as, you know, the middle of nowhere in Ontario, and I've been as south as Florida and most places in between. Um, but as far as horizontal, horizontally, laterally, I've barely moved. I've gone to, I think the farthest east I've ever been is Hartford, Connecticut. And when I was three, we went to one of the Dakotas, but I hardly even count that because I don't remember it. And so it's since my memory formed itself, I really haven't gone west at all. I've only gone north and south. I'm kind of morbidly curious to see what California is like, um, but really I'm more interested in all the stuff in between. Northern California is beautiful. The wine country is beautiful. Um, <laughs> up towards Washington, Oregon, up, up on that end of California. It's just gorgeous. Yeah, that's what I hear. But unfortunately, if, if we were going to go to California, we'd be headed straight for Babylon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you could go, um, from there you could go, if you, let's see, you're not going to drive, you fly out that way. But the, man, Nevada and Utah, uh, Arizona, that areas, those areas are beautiful. Yeah. Hey, uh, Daniel, I will, will you post the, a link to your show in the meeting notes, meetings chat? Sure. I don't even know the name of your show and we talk, you know, you guys talk about it, but I don't even know the name of it. So I can't go listen. The story of nowhere. And yes, I will post. Okay. Link. You got to listen to the Kevin Cole episode. He focuses on things I don't understand why he thinks they matter. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the same argument I get into with the post-libertarians. It's like, 
oh, hey, you guys are so, so interested in modern politics. We're telling me to worry about like time horizons. And I'm like, you guys can't even get outside of like the fact that this is all still left versus right bullshit. It's all part of the fucking dialectic. Right. Yeah. The post libertarian crowd, it really intrigues me, but it also really confuses me. My um, buddy, the only thing that matters is that Buck Johnson is the nicest guy in the world, and you should love Buck Johnson. I actually have only ever heard him when he talked to James Corbett, uh, but he seems like a good podcaster, a good interviewer. Um, he's, he's also just, I, I will stand up for him as a person. He's probably one of the most genuine people I've met in all my years of podcasting. Nice. Like, he's, he, he's running for, like, an at-large position at city council his town of Lockhart, Texas right now. Right. Yeah, so I'm interested in that. And I feel like those sorts of people are definitely allies, but I don't understand the argument. And I, I want to understand it more. The argument from Hoppe that the only real voluntary society you can have has to be right wing. I understand pieces of it, but the question I want to ask first of all is, does that then mean that yeah, when you talk to libertarians and anarchists or whatever, you'll often get this refrain that, you know, look, this has never really happened before. You'll either get that or you'll get, well, it's happening all the time right now. This is all relationships are anarchic and the state is just imposed on top of it. So you'll get one of those two answers from your standard libertarian or ANCAP. But with this whole framing that the only way this could be done is in a severely right wing context. To me, that implies that pretty much the entirety of European history, so long as you were living on the near fringes of any right. quality, the entire history of Europe is anarcho-capitalist in, in that term, then, because it was all right-wing, decentralized, feudal peasant organizations. Well, so while you say that, a lot of these guys fucking love Napoleon, just so we're clear. Really? They fucking love Napoleon. Well, that's he's, a problem. He's the guy that managed to undo all the bullshit from the uh, the French Revolution or whatever it was. I think is how they like they went and smashed the whole thing apart. And he's the guy that fixed it. Oh, he didn't fix it. Well, th- I'm just telling you right now. That's the kind of thing that some of these people are talking about right now. That I'd really like to hear more about that because to me. Napoleon is the culmination of the French Revolution. I mean, that's what well, you... I think that they would also probably agree with you on that. Uh-huh. But think, so the Hoppian thing isn't necessarily that only right-wing societies could do, take this path. It's that only right-wing societies are going to be successful because in left-wing societies, they carry the seed of their own destruction. I don't know that I necessarily disagree na- on that, but to have a society without that ability to do that would also just be a terrible place. Humanity's humanity and the idea of getting rid of the ability of everything to explode at any given time would just undermine humanity. Right. Right. Well, so, I, yeah. If you want right. to live in the most stable society in the world and it's a medieval village, you're like a lot of people aren't a lot of people are gonna prefer to take the risk of society unraveling just to have a more interesting life. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, like you said, they're, they're all about stability. And yes, some of them will. Hence how you end up with, yes, monarchs are definitely preferable to a democracy. 
Yeah. You're not going to sell many people on that either. But uh, what degree of right wing does it have to be? And what degree of left wing? Like, where's the line where, okay, this far to the left, you're going to destroy yourself. But is there any middle ground? That's up for grabs. Like, that hop, like, Hoppe was suspicious of, like, say, the, like, say, the gay agenda because he grew up in the, or he, his thought process in a lot of it was in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And look what the gay community was doing in the 90s. Like, of course, he's terrified of that, like, ripping society apart because it was doing its damnedest to rip society apart. Right. And, like, and you say, oh, slippery slope. Well, look, that, that slope got real fucking slick real fast now that we're talking about fucking force trans like forcing kids into like trans identities and like medical fucking intervention as children so as much as i'd like to say they weren't right about the slippery slope i think they were pretty much right about the slippery slope in that regards yeah one yeah. Thing i've heard constantly repeated in like right-wing circles is like one of their mantras now is the slippery slope is not a fallacy yeah I- and it's, it really wasn't right right now as a bisexual person, like, yeah, no, I, I definitely see where, like, the people in charge of whatever the fuck that movement is went way the fuck overboard. Yeah. I'd really be interested in finding the line, though, and I want to know what these post-libertarians will even define as right-wing. I know Hoppe talked about it, and I think his definition pretty much falls in line with the one that I came up with in that political spectrum show, where it's like, basically, they understand that hierarchy is the, a fact of human nature, whereas the left prefers egalitarianism to be um, <laughs> endemic within human nature. And regardless of which side of that I agree with, the point is that I don't really know that anybody believes 100% that it's, you know, everything is total hierarchy, vertical integration. Like there's got to be some level of equity in there. Well, what they're also going to tell you, they're also you're you're making a political right wing determination. They're going to stand up for a cultural right wing society. But even that regard that the culture itself allows for hierarchy and is based on it. You know, there's a meritocracy and there's also a deference to authority within the culture. The traditional values right wing kind of culture. Like it's this all becomes very Republican very quickly in my opinions. Like it's all these people that have read the Machiavellians and are super obsessed with like fucking political power. And I'm like, okay. Yes, I've seen that. But I think, I think in theory, their idea is that if we had a culture and a society in which proper authorities were given due respect, we wouldn't need a state. Right. So like if people were good and listened to their priest and to their dad and to their grandpa, we wouldn't need to have a government coming in and fixing everything because people would organize themselves in the proper hierarchies that nature has designated. That seems to be that's what I'm seeing anyway. Um, Yeah. I think they think to get there first, we do need the state to start cracking heads because we're so far from that in their mind. Yes and no. I mean, ultimately, I don't know that any of them truly is an is an anarchist anymore. Like they've all kind of, hence how they're post libertarian. Like they're, you eventually go to the end of the Rubicon and you realize, oh no, we totally need some somebody to someone to be in charge of crackheads. And you know, their their big thing is, I guess, a lot of them have moved on to what's called elite theory now. 
Yes. And it's all about, you know, well, we don't, we, 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 there's going to be elites. You just want natural good elites. And I think that ends us right back under the fucking Rothschilds. <laughs> okay. Congratulations. You're right back where you started, folks. The people that are destroying the planet. Have fun. They're operating under this premise that the elites we have now are like bad elites. And I don't mean bad morally. I mean that they're or something like what what fucking planet are you living i mean maybe maybe some of the ones that you see like bill gates is a fat slob like okay but as far as them doing and getting away with what they want they're pretty freaking good at it yeah no i mean that's a well-oiled machine but that's the thing like these people they they claim to be the ones looking at the big picture and they're the last people looking at the big picture they're looking like the picture stops for them like they'll, they'll be the same people trashing agorists, but tell you that you go, oh, everything's local, you got to do everything local and get involved locally. And okay, and you're like 10 people out of your local. Like, the thing is, is that they've had some, like, some small victories, in, like, say, Florida. I think that none of these people realizes what's coming to Florida in the next five years when everything that they think is from the upheld in Florida is going to be completely destroyed from the federal level and they don't get that and they're like oh well fucking uh, what's his name here has gone and uh made it illegal for esg in the state of florida i'm like cool that means none of the big investors in the country are going to invest in your state your state will die yeah like you you think you're fighting a battle you can't fight good luck i mean i guess i i support like the, the spirit of it but the battle it doesn't seem like one they're going to win. Nikki, elaborate on that. Why you think that going against ESG will backfire on them? Oh, I mean, because that's where all the fucking money is. And the bottom line is, is yes, you may not like Larry Fink, but he controls all of the world's money, essentially. He's the guy that decides where BlackRock puts its money. Look at every major corporation in the U.S. Look, where, look how much of the percentage of the voting rights of that are Larry Fink. What it means is, yeah, you can fight ESG standards. It just means no major, no major investor will be able to come into your state. Period. Like you're not going like, to all those people that you those rich people. Guess what? It's loans for most of those people and their access to capital. Well, if they're not following ESG standards, they're not going to have access to capital because the big capital lenders aren't going to give it to them. Like, people just don't understand the gravity and scope of the problem. And they're, like, fucking lashing out in small, insignificant ways thinking it's fucking huge. Like, so do you, you think that that guy that's going to invest in a hotel in Florida just has the $50 million sitting around? No, he's going to go borrow that. But if he doesn't follow ESG standards, he's not going to be able to. And right. there's a certain level of finance where you'd go to get that money and it's not going to allow them to have it. And so congratulations. Yeah, you if you wanted to play ball, you have access to that. But if you don't, you don't. The money always stops with the people that fucking are in charge. Yeah, good point. Thank you. Like I I I, I applaud what, what their thought process is. I don't see it working out just because of how high it's a food chain that problem originates. So it's a logistical problem. It's not necessarily a theoretical problem. 
Oh, yeah, no, I mean, it's like, okay, that's cool. You want to fight ESG, but you will stop any money coming into your state because the people that control the purse strings at that level of development, they're just not going to give you the investment. I mean, my hope is, and this is a, a big hope, is that they they tried to force their hand too early and we might actually be able to stop at least America diving in. If we stop America diving into that fucking pond too deep, it at least forestalls what they're trying to do. Now, is, is, big part, fucking- is part of that stallage a fact that there is, in fact, a large, a relatively large contingent of angry right-wingers who have, for whatever reason, have been led to believe that this is against their their interests. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I mean, there's been enough of us libertarians sounding the alarm on this for a long time. Like, dude, I've I've been podcasting about the ESG shit for fucking years now. Yeah. Like, it's like it, it, there are those who know about it. Corbett's been doing it for years, and the bottom line is everyone is so fucking fed up with government that like a lot of us are, are getting noticed and listened to in a lot of this shit. Like, uh, I, I, if, you, if you don't listen to Liberty Lockdown, Clint Russell, his big thing is ESG, and he comes at it from he used to be a mortgage, uh, a private mortgage broker, and like he, so he understands institutional money very well. And and he couldn't understand for the longest time how the fuck this stuff was making any sense. Why are all these people with all this money making what are suicide decisions financially? And so he he went all the way down that rabbit hole and like and he he's like yeah it really it was listening to him at uh, Freedom Fest uh, he posted on his feed the other day and a lot of it's. How like he thinks we're too far down the rabbit hole at this point, and that like it's just going to be weathering the storm of what like what's going on in Sri Lanka and other nations like that right now. <laughs> I still think there's hope for us. Like now, granted, I think it's a forestalling because I think they've brainwashed Gen Z so deep that like basically we're we're relying on the few conservative millennials to fucking hold things back from going that direction. And Gen Z is just too far bought in that, like, when they're in charge, we're all fucked. There's that. I think another possibility is that this stuff, I mean, beginning really with the COVID lockdown uh, and then continuing on into the ESG stuff and all the environmental claims that we're seeing. Did they play their early? A reaction. Well, there could be a, a strong reaction in the other direction. Um, I know that there are already people doing polls and they're finding that. As of right now, Gen Z is pretty friggin' conservative compared to previous generations at that age, that time. So the, there could be, like you were earlier saying about Napoleon being a sort of corrective. In, in the right winger's mind, Napoleon is the one who reversed all the bullshit of the French Revolution. And I think that sort of Thermidorian right wing yeah. connection to radical leftism is a very real possibility. So what we may see is, you know, the so-called left, they push so they push so hard that they incur a strong right-wing reaction. But what the what the right-wing reaction will have to adopt some of the infrastructure of that radical left. 
So if a right man, right wing strongman comes to power, uh, it's not a given that he's not going to be utilizing something like ESG. It's just going to be framed in a right wing manner. And maybe well, it's that. that's like I said, it's about because you and I understand this is about the dialectic. And mm-hmm. yes, left fighting each other is what they want, but they want to get what they want in place. Yeah. It's that's why I said I don't DeSantis is nothing to me as much as they think he's God's savior because oh it was better in better in Florida for a year and then what happens when DeSantis is president and then he has a suck in Israel's dick yeah. and Florida falls to you know falls into whatever hellscape that's going to fall out him there yeah his and, Israel shit is a complete deal breaker for me his anti BDS law stuff and you can't say such and such about Israel I mean. Yes, this tears me because, yes, it is from a pragmatic single issue voter kind of point of view. Yeah, you're right. You were you were better off in Florida during the covid shit than you were in pretty much any other state except except for what, North Dakota or whatever. So that yeah, that's good. But to me, that's like a can't buy me love situation. It's like just because he's doing that doesn't necessarily mean he's a good guy or even a good leader. and. I'm just, I'm really wary of putting my chips behind somebody who does one thing that I like. And yes, it's an important thing, but I'm not going to immediately jump into that guy's bandwagon because I don't know where he's leading it. DeSantis, the Antichrist? I don't know. You have to believe in that sort of thing. Could be. What's his middle name? How many letters are in each name? (laughs) (laughs) Ty, so you've been around a while. So you have a, a broader frame of like, information than we were from. There is a bunch of fucking yeah. yuck doing shit. Yeah. No, but you, you know, from no, you're you're not correct. Uh, yes, I have been around. Um, but you guys are really when it comes to politics, you're so and and putting the pieces together on conspiracy and the history of the power. Structure. I've learned so much from you guys about that than I have anybody else. But what do I think about this ESG and all of all of that type of thing that's going on? I think that starting with now Canada, but starting with uh, the Netherlands saying that you know you've got to cut seventy percent of your nitrogen usage and emissions, um, and Canada's following suit. Uh, my guess is that Biden with these new emergency powers is going to do the same thing and say that, you know, basically all you farmers are screwed. And as this moves throughout Europe and the United States and Canada and probably Australia and New Zealand, there's going to, I think there's a good chance that there's going to be a tipping point and the people are going to realize, well, there's a lot more of us than there are of them. And, you know, fuck them. And well, but, but that's the thing. It's like, that's where it gets frustrating. Well, we all know that the government doesn't vote for our interests because it never has. Like, if you go every vote in Congress for the past fucking 90 years, there hasn't been a single vote that was voted in the favor of what the population actually wanted. They vote against us at every single term, and nothing changes. Right. But, I mean, you look at what's going on in the Netherlands and in what, there's like nine or ten other countries where they're actually... Physically going after burning and trashing things. Like Sri Lanka burned down the house of and then the guy that they voted for to replace him they found out was also a world economic guy. 
he, he's the one that wrote the program that they're all pissed off about that ruined them. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's frustrating. And it, like, I don't know. You just, I hope everyone, I, I, I have a daughter, so I just hope that people see what the fuck's going on on mass before, you know, getting her food is too difficult. Yeah. The resistance that may arise is what it's like the greatest hope and the greatest, threat. you know, because I, I, oh, oh. I think that yes. it does matter what form the resistance takes. And I think there are a lot of people out there who don't think it matters what form the resistance takes. They're like, look, the the status quo is so bad that whatever reactionary force arises is necessary to do away with it. And I'm going to get behind it because resistance in itself is good. And I appreciate that mindset. And man, 10 years ago, I was that guy because I was fucking 18 or whatever, how old I was, you know, like, of course I was tear it all down. But now I think I'm a little more calm and I think it actually does make a huge difference what form the resistance takes, what it does, and how excitable it is. Uh, it, that matters a great deal. And I mean, even if you want to get really conspiratorial, which I love to do, perhaps triggering some kind of excessively violent, over-the-top reaction to all this crazy shit is the point. You know, perhaps that right-wing or populist, quote-unquote, pendulum swing is the new world order, you know, to put it in those terms. And so I'm just super skeptical of anything. And so when some white knight DeSantis rides in and everyone's immediately fawning at his feet, I'm like, whoa, it it matters what the resistance is. Have you watched uh, 2012? The movie 2012? Yeah. Sure. I saw it in theaters. It was fun. Um, I, I'm just I'm just thinking about that movie as we talk. Uh-huh. I care about like the disaster side of it because that's all just, like window dressing, right? But look at the idea like that that movie sells as far as like the value of people. You know, look at the way the the leaders in that movie think. You know, the the nepotism, the fucking you know oligarchic preference, like oh, we're gonna save these people in the big submarines if you can get to them and you better have private jets and you know like what does it say about fucking people like why why is that not a fucking big warning for what people like the esg people have planned for us right i remember watching on i guess it was like true tv or something years ago back in maybe like 2008 it might have even been on jesse ventura's conspiracy theory show if anyone remembers that gem Um, but they were talking about, maybe it wasn't that show, whatever. It doesn't matter. The point is they were talking about, you know, these millionaires and billionaires are buying these old retired missile silos and turning them into these underground housing complexes, essentially, where they can like grow food and they've got circulated air and all blah, 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 all this crazy shit. Actually, you're finding they're being sold for a lot cheaper than that. It's it's actually kooks like us that are buying the missile silos. <laughs> to be completely honest, I've I've seen a couple of guys post their their builds. Mm, interesting. Maybe yeah, like all those silos were going for like eighty grand because no one wanted the land. Maybe we'll have to look into one of those as a group. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing left. I keep up on it. <laughs> good, good. My own missile silo. I promise you. 
I'll get back to you on that. If you if you find one that's in our range, we'll go for it. Damn. Okay. So the way it was presented to me was that this was something that like a bunch of rich douche, douchebags were doing. What's uh, what's funny? It, like so, like there's actually a guy I watched who did a video on this, where mm-hmm. like he has specifically picked out the people in like the local town that are invited in, and like they all represent different elements of what he thinks we would need in a post-apocalyptic world and like he's got enough i think enough stuff down there for 14 people for a couple years and like you know part of his plan he's super hippy dippy about it too he's like we got a doctor and we got the musician and we got so-and-so and they're all specifically there to meet a particular part of what a society would need to like function for for any length of time I mean, the guy put in a lot of thought, and but he didn't spend that much money to buy the bunker. Like it was just like he's just a kind of like a dude who, you know, was like us, sees shit coming and is trying to prepare. Hey, it's not a bad move, man. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there are better ways to spend your money, but if you've got a lot of it lying around, well, that's the thing. Like a lot of those bunkers, like they they weren't going for the prices that you'd think they'd go for. Like you're you're matching. Oh, it's gonna be so expensive that like. Only some some national government would be able to afford it, and it's it's like decommission decommission fucking where are bunkers? It's not shit they need anymore. Right. They're just all fucking cheap. They're all in the middle. Of the, they're all in the middle of the desert. It's like you can't do anything with them, like other than bring shit and ship stuff into store in it. Like there's no there's no infrastructure around for them to become a threat or anything. Yeah. Right. And if we're all underwater, I mean, they're still not going to work because they're going to need to get in there somehow. It's generally a recycler that they use, but. It's- I've got a, an acquaintance of mine who is currently on the path of trying to find a community. Uh, if she lives in upper Michigan and she has community up there, she's part of the farming community, but it, it she wants to get out of there. Um, and she's late 50s. And so for the past year, she's been going around the country to areas that she likes and, and looking at some of these planned communities. Um, and some of them are established and some of them are new. And she said that they all suck and that there's just no way without having some sort of authoritarian type of setup that these things can work because they just don't work on altruism. This- I thought that was an interesting thing. This is right back to the post-libertarian conversation. That right. question, do, does there have to be some kind of authoritarian power structure or, or figure who's keeping everything in line? And when someone steps out of line, he exerts force and basically corrects the error in the system. That's a huge question that a lot of people seem to be winding up on the authoritarian side of these days. And it's really on both sides. Go ahead. She's looked at over 30 of these communities, and the only ones that are succeeding are where there is someone that had the original idea to set it up, and they remained in control. Yeah. Well, in general, you're not going to get a community without a leader. It just doesn't happen. And it, like, There's a central spoke at which a wheel, like, all wheels have the, have the axle at which they spin around. Societies are exactly the same. They don't exist without some type of central thing keeping that. Now, you can put ideology there, but ideology doesn't necessarily move in a direction or keep things cohesive long. 
Well, and it's still going to be individuals interpreting that ideology that drives exactly. the ideology itself isn't some ghost. You look at a church, you look at a town, they're all centered around some figure. Yes. That kind of points the direction and keeps the thing moving. Um which which I think is which is completely in line with anarchism in my opinion. Like, yeah, you're gonna have people that do that because it's something that people do. Now, when they start forcing people to go along, that's the problem. It's like, hey, I'm going this direction. Who wants to come? That's okay. When right. it becomes, well, if you don't want to come, we're going to behead you and leave you. Like that's well, I think I think there might be a, a slight difference. I think the question is, I'm going this way. Do you want to come? And then everyone who comes says, yes, I'll come. After that point, if they've already decided to come, and then they deviate from the plan they agreed to follow, then you have the right to exert force on them. They agreed to be there. Well, I'm not a post-libertarian. I'd say no. I'd say you shun them from the group. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really the argument. But, uh, by the way, I am a hoppian. Like, I do believe excommunication of the undesirables is totally within our, your rights as a society. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. My problem is, is you know, some of these people... Like they're being a little bit more proactive, like, hey man, you know, you could just like not drop the drop them in the ocean from a helicopter and like maybe just let them move a town over. <laughs> yeah, it very quickly takes on this Stalin-esque form, uh, which is what disturbs me by the whole framing of right wing and left wing, because I really don't again, I aside from the very abstract point that one believes in hierarchy and the other doesn't. I don't see any actual human beings operating in such a black and white way. People, people will nominally favor one or the other, but they're always going to act as if both are in play at the same time. Find the most left-wing society in the history of the planet, and I promise you there's hierarchy there. You know, always, Maybe you could say that all governments are right-wing, but at that point, we're dismissing the entire post-libertarian point in the first place. Like- I'm a right winger only by Michael Malice's standards, in my opinion. That you believe some people are better than others? Is that what it is? Well, that's not quite it. Okay. It, 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 because everyone believes that. Some people just won't admit it. It's whether or not you say yes to that question or give a speech. Okay. You give a speech because you know it's true, but you don't want to admit it. Right. That's the idea. Like everyone believes that, Everyone believes some people are better than others. I can't think of a single person that like d- that doesn't believe that in their core. Now they like they might justify it differently, but like they all believe it. Right. Don't I really don't? No, I, I don't believe that. We are all created from the same stuff, and we all have the potential. And every person that you run across has something to teach you. Period. I mean, no matter how they fit into society or don't fit into society do they have something to offer you and we're all made up of the same shit we're more alike the chair in your dining room than you are different from it when it comes to the, the stuff we're made of and no i'm totally I, I don't feel that anybody's better than anybody else ever and and I've been that way a long time okay so do, here's a question how about you rephrase do you believe anyone is a burden on society I believe that, well, yes and no. No, actually, because if you've got people that need our help because they have some sort of 
All right, let's see. Mental. Prove my point. An explanation. Go ahead. What? As you've already proven the point, you feel it needs an explanation. You understand that there are people that have a value that requires them to be brought along. And it's absolutely. Well, that's my but that's that my point is their their value at the very least needs an explanation. I'm miss, I'm missing your point. Um, they're still they're still my equal. I believe, but that's the thing. I believe all people are equal as far as like our our what we deserve in in respect. But I'm not going to tell you that everyone's everyone is equal. Like I'm sorry if you're born with no legs and you can't. You can't can't do anything but breathe with machine help. No, you're not equal, like equal as far as like value to society. You're just not. Well, now, and and if, you know, if you want my opinion on what you do with a person like that, is you just let them die. Well, <laughs> but there lies my point. Like there, there is some delineating factor here. It was like yeah, sure. I I don't know that that person is having a, 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 the the only value they have is to make the parents feel good about allowing them to live. Frankly. Like that, I don't know what quality of life there is for that person, frankly. Yeah, I'm not sure whether or not there's a thing like reincarnation. And if you're trapping somebody in a, they, if, if the body that they got put into is a shitty body and you're trapping them in it, then you're exactly. fucking them over. It, 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 exactly. But, 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 but that there lies my point is that, like, well, clearly not, we're not all put into a state to even offer society anything. And at which point, like, there is a societal value that a person has. Now, does that mean that anyone isn't deserving of respect and kindness? Absolutely not. That, that is where I think that we, we should all be equal. But like the, the, you, if you were to talk to say like a, a leftist, like they would sit here and come up with all the excuses in the world for why that person is as valuable as society. Like, no, they're just not. Like in, and they they have to explain it, but they understand at the core that that person just isn't societally valuable as, as someone else. So clearly there's a weight to what a human being is that's available. Right. I understand your point. Yeah. It, it's, it's, I don't know, like it, basically I'm, I'm sure in, in the leftist sense, Oh, if someone's an asshole. They're not valuable to society is I'm sure something that they would say. Yeah. I think plenty of assholes that are plenty valuable to society. You know, I'm not sure if I agree with this thing about the left believing that everybody's equal. I mean, I don't even know that they believe that. On. I think they try to pretend that they do. Maybe. I mean, but historically, I don't think so. Historically, what leftist regime has ever even operated under that pretense? It's always the collective itself. It's always the spirit of the... It's, it's Either every left-wing regime that's ever existed is actually far right, or this formulation about what the left is is flawed. Well, no, I think I, I think it's the most meaningless delineator in the world: the left versus right. Mm, absolutely. Like because it, 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 for example, the reason I said yeah, every every fucking communist regime starts that yeah, they start killing one group of people. They clearly right. think that even though they're preaching equality of people, it's oh, we're going to kill the people that are in the in the way of us becoming equals. Exactly. Keep chopping their own fucking head off, which is why so. so as Clint put it, he, 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 in, in the talk he was, he was a part of, he's like, look, the thing with ESG is that it's collectivist. Collectivism always fails. The problem is, is how much damage is it going to do in the fucking failure part of that? Mm. Communism fails every time it's ever been tried, but it usually ends up in a lot of fucking dead people. 
yes. on the wall. And there lies the frustration. It's like, I would like to avoid all the dead people if we can. Yeah, well, that's that's exactly my my concern is, you know, all of this shit is utopian and utopias by definition can't work. The problem. So that's the good news. The good news is this dumbass plan isn't going to work. The bad news is getting to the point where it doesn't work is going to have a lot of motherfuckers dead. Yeah, yes. that's the that- yeah, that's the issue right there. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I'm and. and yeah, it is what it is, though, right? So it, it just behooves us to to find our tribe and and uh, be there to uh, lead. Yeah, well, and that that means a degree of laissez-faire with other people choosing their tribes. So like, so long as shit's decentralized and they're going to leave us alone and we're going to leave them alone, then you know it could theoretically work if a group of people want to get together in some urban setting and impose on that scale some form of esg or whatever like we're not going to raise an army to stop them so long yeah, as they're not bringing it over to our place and then when it fails <laughs> you know. well, like i always said danny it's like that's why i don't care about ancoms because ultimately I'm, I'm more than happy to homestead their property when they die exactly right it's the problem is imperialism that's really <laughs> the core of it you it's i'd say it's utopianism but like the step right the step the step of depth right before utopianism is imperialism. Um, it, it's people with their great ideas going out and deciding that they need to impose it on everybody else. So, I mean, I'm if if you want to start your post-libertarian fucking authoritarian society or whatever, you know, so long as it's not where we're living, I don't care. Oh, I don't even know about that. I would probably choose to live in one of those places. Frankly, it seems like a very stable society, but like. Well, it depends on what the choices are. Yeah, obviously. If do I want to live in a place where my kids are being forced to fucking go to school and sit in drag queen story hour? Probably not. I'm gonna. I'm definitely gonna choose the post libertarian town over that one. But yeah, my daughter's concerned about the the, the totalitarian authoritarian uh, socialist way of life coming here, and I just told her. I said, just learn to play the game. Don't fight it because it's not going to last forever. Just learn to play it and play it well and succeed. And whatever the game is that's being foisted upon you, learn to play the game. You don't have to fight everything all the time. Just succeed and make your child learn how to succeed so that when things change, she can also be flexible. Why the greatest anarchist song in the world, Tyser, was written by Mike and the Mechanics. Ah, yes. I got that. All right. I've never done. I've never put that before. Uh, two together before. Mechanics like teach the children quietly because someday sons and daughters will rise up where we stood still. Yeah, that's the success within the system is not necessarily the same thing as buying into the system. You can know that every Correct. single thing out of their mouths is a lie, and still play the game in a way that sets you up for when the thing fails, you're ahead, and they're not. And if it doesn't fail in your lifetime, you've succeeded. Right. And you've passed that on to your children. And even if it does come crashing down, if you've truly succeeded, you'll be the one who's like got a bit of a nest egg. You know, you'll have something to go. Like with daughter, like, you know, I, I teach her the way things I believe they are. But I also teach her like, hey, you know, you need to learn how to fit in and pretend that you're one of those people of nothing else. Live to fight another day. That whole thing. Yeah. 
Like, Absolutely. What do you think about Hong Kong and Taiwan? What do I think about it? Yeah. I think that Nancy Pelosi should shut the fuck up. Um, no, I think that those places, it would be great if they resisted in their own way, but I don't think the American empire should have anything to do with it because I don't want it to be nuked. Yeah, it sounds pretty shitty. Yeah. I mean, did you see what Nancy Pelosi said over there? I have no idea. I didn't know. So she went to Maybe Taiwan, which China looked, China viewed her going there as a completely belligerent act because she's like the third most powerful person in the American government, which is hilarious. And so people were like begging her not to go. She decided to go anyway. And then she just babbled at them. She said um, something to the effect of you've got, you've got liberty and freedom over here. And then over here, you've got security. And that's another thing. But, 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 but you can't have either. You need to have both. So she completely mangled the Ben Franklin quote. She got she completely misrepresented that ethos of Americanism that you can't trade liberty for security and expect to keep them. She said that you have to have both. And she said that by babbling incoherently at a room full of people who probably, although English isn't their first language, apparently understand it better than she does. It's completely embarrassing. And are we not free, Mr. Jefferson? Homes entered without warrant, citizens arrested without charge, and in many places, free assembly itself denied. No one approves of such things, but these are dangerous times. Be careful, Mr. Dickinson. Those who give up some of their liberty in order to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. In our earliest days of our founding of our country, Benjamin Franklin presidency said, Freedom and democracy. Freedom and democracy on one thing. Security here. If we don't have, we can't have either if we don't have both. So, security, economics, security, economy, and again, they're all, and governance, they're all related, and we want Taiwan to always have freedom with security and we're not backing away from that and it's like that's what you really needed to tell the taiwanese people you're gonna risk fucking uh escalating things further with china to tell them that look she didn't get to where she's at because of her brain power it was her giant ass old lady titties pretty much (laughs) pretty much yeah so that's that situation. Uh, is you could find the video if you care. It's it's. But don't we that. don't we have a mandate to force everyone into freedom with us, Danny? Well, yeah, that's America's next great contribution to civilization. Charles W. Eliot said so a hundred years ago. We we've got to bring the world our freedom. Mm-hmm. We know? owe it to them. It's not it's not just that we want to. It's that we have to, because if we don't, World War III is going to start. But in the process of doing, us doing so, we're going to start World War III. We have to bring it to them, because otherwise we won't be able to take all their shit. Yeah. Well, Putin will get it. <laughs> we can't have that, because he's not a liberal like we are. 
Well, but the, the thing of that is, is how quickly does that become a religious debate? Uh, getting into like the whole Orthodox Christian thing. Oh, yeah. Well, talk about post-libertarianism. Where does Dugan fit into all of this? And the whole like kind of Russian revivalist movement. I mean, that's another fascinating aspect of intellectual, um, of the intellectual thought that's spinning around right now. I know. Oh, it's super weird. Like, why are all these people like... And they're like weird. They're not... A lot of post-libertarians or like the right-wingers that I know about here in America are very like reversionist. Like, they want to go back to 1450. But Dugan and his crowd, like, they're, they're one part feudalist and they're one part technocracy. You know, like, they embrace technology as far as I can tell. Just hasn't been used right. Yes, exactly. They think there's a good way to be technocratic. Yeah, I mean, under God's under God's supervision, you know, all things. Yeah. Which, um, yeah I was listening to a really interesting discussion about the whole thing the other day. Because a lot of you, if, if, from a, if you start looking into the Orthodox Christian faith, like, it explains a lot of what, how Russian reacts, to, how Russia reacts to stuff. Um, you know, essentially they see themselves as like the, the last bastion of Christianity in a heathen world. Yeah. And understandably so, I think, I mean, yeah, they're the only ones not buying into like the American fuck. Even China is like in the American system. Yeah. They're bucking for control of it, but like they're, they're part of this global world and kind of never been that. <laughs> if any group has earned a persecution complex, it's them. I mean, yeah. you know, their fathers and grandfathers, we're you know, the most oppressed people ever. So yeah, you can understand why they're going to come out and they're going to come out hard. Like those are some, those are not, you know, only go to church on Christmas Christians, mm-hmm. the real deal. And I can understand why. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm friends with many of the, uh, these, I mean, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of post libertarians. So I'm curious, like we can countenance them, you know, there's a space in, in our, worldview i think for them to be able to exist the way they want my question is is there space for us in their world if we want well, oh is it like they, of course and there's room in an anarchist society for communists but is there room for anarchists in a communist society no right and if they're not as you said earlier you don't really know that they're really anarchists anymore exactly then, then where am i i'm not a communist at all yeah but even as such, you know, I, I think if you're somebody who's got enlightenment liberal values, where do you fit in 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 the sort of post libertarian society? Uh, probably you don't, honestly. Most right. Well, this is my point. Where's the line? How far right do you need to be, and how far left is too far left? If fucking is Thomas Jefferson too far left? Yes. All right. Well, then there's going to be a problem. <laughs> But he owns slaves, so he gets a pass. Oh, okay. <laughs> he's, he's a good left-winger for that. Right, but let, so where's the line? Who is it? Is it Alexander Hamilton? Is he as far left as you're allowed to go? Oh, boy. Right. And ultimately, then you just start having the same stupid discussions that, like, nobody wants to have. Like, we, I, that's just my big thing. It's like, can we just talk about what, let's, I guess for me, the only discussion worth having is how is it right for a human being to live? Yeah. And 
I kind of don't care what you think is the pragmatic way for human beings to live. I only care what is morally right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm that way too. Uh, pragmatism kind of makes me sick. Like I understand being practical in certain instances, but pragmatism as like an overarching way of being makes me fucking sick. Completely immoral. It's amoral. Well, no, that's exactly it. It's like you're willing to throw your convictions under the bus. Like that's oh, stop living in an cap stand in your head. Well, no, this is the moral code that I choose to use, and I'm sorry that it doesn't lead to a fucking victory over the nonsense leftists. Which, by the way, from a Christian standpoint, is the appropriate thing. Like, yes, you understand that this isn't heaven, and this is going to be a shitty place. Hence, right. why you're heaven. <laughs> right. Right. That's the anti-utopianism that I'm professing. Yeah. There is no perfection, and so we're just going to do what's right. Now, for me, not a Christian, that becomes problematic because, you know, I don't believe this is the end-all be-all. <laughs> or I do, I do believe this is probably the end-all be-all, and we should be trying to make it as good a place as possible. But. but the problem with being, the problem with pragmatism, capital P, pragmatism, that the right-wingers who are doing it think they're the most pragmatic, but they'd fail to run, recognize that the moderates and the progressives, the so-called left-wingers, they're, they're the ones who invented pragmatism, and that's what they're doing. Progressivism is pragmatism. It's doing whatever you can to get where you want to go, ends justify the means, and the problem with it at, at its root, I think, with pragmatism is that it just leads to moral relativism because it's, you know, you have a subjective preference and so you do whatever you can to get to it. Well, the other people who have different subjective preferences are going to do the same thing. And the only thing that's left to both groups is to war with each other. That's it. There's no, it, with, within the pragmatist worldview, as far as I see it, there's no way to actually determine truth. Only ways to arrive at certain preferences mechanistically, which damns us all to eternal, eternal warfare. Well, it just sounds like these people need to go and watch Midsummer, Danny. <laughs> that well, and see exactly what moral relativism gets us. Yeah. Danny, what was the one that you said? The Republic. Plato's Republic. Oh. I, I'm always One hit. of my favorite series. I, yeah, I hit this book with a hammer. Everything I ever do, I have to bring up the Republic because, I mean, it's all of this shit that we're talking about was written about 2,400 years ago. And in, in the very beginning, of the Republic, like book one, Socrates completely takes on moral political relativism. And what I, when I look around and I see people talking about, Oh, we have to be pragmatic, blah, blah, blah. And when people talk about relativism and any of its forms, and that's like a new, it's a, a fad now to be a relativist. That's what people are. Uh, it's popular to deny reality and all that shit. And I'm like, guys, you have to realize that if we accept relativism, what necessarily follows is eternal strife and warfare. Because justice becomes the will of the stronger. There's no longer any way to determine actual truth from actual falsehood. It becomes my preference over your preference. There's no way to prove who's more right or who's wrong. And so we just have to kill each other. Is that not maybe the most important part of it? Maybe that is the, the, the point in moral relativism? Get rid of each other? Could be. I mean, like I said earlier, maybe the point is to spur on some kind of right-wing right wing reaction. Maybe that's the new world order. I mean, 
Well, people don't think about like culture. Like people really don't think about culture enough. Mm-hmm. That's the big problem with the people on the left that I like. There are leftists that I like because they're good on foreign policy, but their their permanent and irrevocable blind spot is dismissing any cultural commentary as a distraction and bigoted. They don't want to have the conversation about the the trans movement or or any of this stuff because they see it as a distraction from the things they care about. And I say, the little taco girl, can't we have both? Both are important. Culture is important. Well, I mean, it's it's more important than people give it credit for because you'll sit there. How many people you sit there and have a conversation with and say, and they'll say, "Oh, pedophilia is wrong." Hmm. Okay, well, every Arab nation is totally chill with thirteen-year-old girls fucking marrying fifty-year-old dudes, right? So, are you saying we're going to kill all of the Arab nations of the world? Like, what are you what are you signing on to when you say that? Relativism is necessary to forestall, like the the war is kind of how I look at it. You have to accept that, or you have to go to war. Which what choice are you going to make? If I believe that you morally do not live by my rules, either I'm okay with it, or we have to kill you. I don't think you need relativism for that. I think you can make a very easy moral argument that look. People, people all over the world are going to be doing things that we view to be reprehensible. But what would be more, would it be less or more right for us to amass an army of people that compose our community, you know, probably going to be young men, people who are in the prime of their working years who could provide for our community? Is it right for us to take them away from their wives and their children and send them to fight some crusade to uplift the moral state of some other country? Then they fix it and then they what? Come back here? bruised and beaten and battered and dead and and then pick up the pieces essentially the calculus that would have to occur is is it worth us destroying our own community to save some other community that's probably just going to revert back to the old way once we leave i don't think you need relativism not to be imperial i guess my point it comes out what your first principles are Mm -hmm. that's it like if you're like me and accept libertarianism or accepting it anarchism is your first principle then i guess it's not a problem for me unfortunately most people don't operate from that they'll say most people operate from a christian first perspective right without moral relativism yes they would take the crusade because it's justified i think that in itself though is relativistic but okay i get what you're saying like there's this moral duty to go and save and this is the problem with christianity is self-sacrifice right so you know, we're going to sacrifice our productive class to save some other country. Yes. Probably not even going to work. That's, that's ridiculous. Uh, I don't believe in that sort of self-sacrifice. But I, I, if my first principle is going to be the non-aggression principle, then I can both say, I can agree that, you know, invading other countries is wrong, but it's also wrong to deprive our community by some dictate of some leader. It's wrong to deprive the community of its productive class, it's wrong to deprive children of their fathers and I agree with you on their sons. But that, but I can believe all that and still believe that what the Arab countries are doing is morally wrong. I just, I'm, I'm not going to do anything about it because I can't. I guess relativism is the natural next step after Christianity towards peace. Maybe I guess is what I would say. 
because Christianity has to have moral relativism to not to go and destroy the planet, I guess. Well, what do you mean? Do you mean Catholicism? Do you mean evangelical Protestantism? Do you mean Unitarianism? Like, these are significant different. I guess also, like, they all stem from a central, central point. And, like, it's that central theme at which we're talking about. You mean Judaism? They came, they started at, as Jews. And the Jews were very interestingly not very universalistic. They, I don't know that they were relativistic, but they were. I mean, to this day, they only give a shit about Jews. Like, yeah, they were very uh, isolationist. Yeah, fuck you guys. We're doing our own thing over here. I like that. And it doesn't mean that they think what the other people are doing isn't wrong. That's precisely the reason they isolate themselves. They're like, you know, everyone else is debauched and disgusting and gross. And so why would we want to get involved? Let's just focus on being good here. And I think that's probably a better way for us to go. Yes. Well, I think we're all headed towards isolationism here in the not too distant future as our energy resources continue to dwindle and our the population, global population demands on those resources continues to grow. You say that and, and I and I'm and a counselor. I don't see anything to justify that though. Because justify about- what? The, the this idea of peak oil that he, he's so fond of, like Who, who's that Kunstler? Yeah, I haven't like, listened to him in a long time. I mean, but but the, he that, that same theme of his is that oh, ener- we're running out of energy. I have yet to see any thought that that's really happening. Well, so it rolled over in 2018. Since 2018, we have as a globe have used more energy than we've produced. Well, that's because we're not allowed to produce energy anymore. Well, that and it's becoming more expensive to produce. And so therefore, uh, there's and the lack of incentive for the producers to produce more. You know, when you've got a government that's saying, you know, we're going to overtax you on every profit that you make off of this. It's like, well, where's the incentive to, to actually get out there and do it? And when costs of borrowing are going up, you know, when, when loans were being made to, to the, big, the big players at, you know, z- basically 0% interest, and now they're being charged 2% interest, well, there's less people that are willing to take that risk on, on new oil fields. I guess but that's my point. It's not the oil that's the problem. It's the government getting in the way of oil being the problem. Like, you're right. Well, that, that, that's part of it. But we've, we've, we've tapped all the low-hanging fruit, and there's nothing... It's going to continuously, and I'm thinking more long term than than you know a, a decade. But it's going to continuously get harder and more expensive. And unless we come up with some sort of fancy new technological some whirly gig to get the petroleum products out of the ground, um, we're going to have to learn to do with less petroleum. Okay. Well, the, the is so here's the thing with that. That's not going to happen. It can't happen. In fact, our entire society. You you're thinking of petroleum as energy which is who gives a shit about that i'm thinking petroleum as our fucking all of here we use like uh good good luck getting around fucking a world without uh oil to make plastics or fucking plastics baby like that that, that's the real issue it's not the energy even it's how does our world exist without plastics does that's right no not our current not in our current not in in its current state but there's an efficient number one. There's an efficiency. 
yes, you're right. We do use more and more oil. We also have way more efficient uses of oil. Everything that we use, we get more efficient at using. And, and so it's like, how long that goes on? I don't know, but it's gone on forever so far. Well, you say gone on forever, but it's only been 150 years out of the entirety of mankind. This has only been 150 years. We've used more oil and natural gas and coal in the last two decades than all of mankind has in previous history. The other question I have is, what do you, what do you say to the people who believe it is, a, it is a finite resource at all? That say that it's not a finite resource? Yeah, like that's all horseshit. Everyone who, like, it, it is a constantly renewing resource that exists because of, like, that exists because of the thermal processes of the, the planet. Well, that's true. But, you know, what we're tapping took 10,000 years to make, and it's we're pulling it out at a rate that's greater than the replenishing rate. People that don't buy that at all. It didn't take that thousand years to make. It's like naturally being made at all time. Well, sure. In, but, you know, so take a look at the tar sands, for example, and, or these shale areas. So these are areas that have not, con- not finished their production of oil that's we're having that's why we have to use so much energy to finish the process it is you know that's those are oil fields waiting to happen they just haven't happened yet because there hasn't been enough time and and thermal energy and pressure applied to those sands and oil uh, and uh, shale to be able to make it into pools of pumpable oil so you're right it, it's um, it's it is a renewable thing and it's continuously being made and there's a boatload of it that is underneath the oceans and underneath the ice caps. And if we have global warming, that'll be easier to get as that shit melts off. But I guess my point is, is that like, so we, we, if we, we, we limit it, we, we, we drastically limit what human beings can accomplish. If we use it, there's always the potential that it helps us find our way out of using it. True. To me, like, well, it, whatever human beings are on this trajectory, I don't see the point in not, trying to accomplish more if more is capable. Oh, I agree, but there's no political will to do that. We're wrapped up in this ESG thing where oil is bad and, and you know, we're, we, we can't utilize it to work our way out of it at the rate we're going. Yeah. And if we screw the financial system up and if people lose faith in the financial system, then nobody's going to be investing any money in finding more and figuring out new ways to get it out of the ground turn it into plastic. You don't think that once that system collapses, like something will take place to move on? I don't know. People don't play well together when things get scarce. I, I have a feeling, you know, I've, I've got this kind of fatalistic thought process that, you know, as things get more expensive, then these international players don't play nice with each other and, and become isolationists. And then the whole system of, of finance goes away and then we you know now all of a sudden we're back to 1889 well at least we're on the most uh resource dense fucking land mass in the world well one of them russia is pretty much that but yes we're we're very blessed to be where we are well and you and i you and i are at an advantage because if shit really does hit the fan we could just disappear into the metro parks (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, look, guys, I, I love this conversation, but I have to leave. Morning found us calmly unaware. 
into our hell At night we swam the laughing sea When summer's gone Where will we be? Where will we be? Where will we be? Summer's almost gone Yeah, it's almost gone Some good time, but they're gone. The winter is coming on, summer's almost gone.